All right. Good morning, church. Today, I have the privilege and joy of opening God's Word with you all again as we continue our study in 1 Peter. Uh, We will be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. And uh, I have to warn you, today we might run a little late, um, just because this is a rich passage and and with Paul's ordination coming up next week, I I want it to be a bit more thorough, because the topic of this passage today is the elder. So with that, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. It reads, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and sufficient. Thank you that it is living and active, sharpened than any two-edged sword. I pray that it would accomplish your purposes today. Please give us wisdom now as we study it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as a quick review, we know that Peter wrote this letter to Christians at a time when they were facing rising persecution and much suffering. Right Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter encourages them all, encourages them and all of us who may be grieved by various trials to suffer well. As Christians, we ought to suffer as those who have a hope in a future inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And as Christians, we ought to suffer as those who have entrusted our souls to our, to our Creator who is faithful and sovereign and good. And in the midst of all that, Peter exhorts the believer to live exemplary lives keeping their conduct honorable among unbelievers and to submit themselves to the ruling authorities in society, to their bosses in the workplace, and wives to their husbands in the home. Now, as Peter wraps up his letter, he addresses the elders, the leaders of the church. And that is the main object of our consideration for today. It is the office of the elder. This passage is unique because it is one of only two places in the New Testament that singles out elders from the rest of believers for direct exhortation. The only other example is found in Acts chapter 20, where, Peter, uh, where Paul I'm sorry, uh, addressed the Ephesian elders. Now, I believe there may be three practical reasons why Peter exhorts the elders specifically. All three reasons tie to, the one, to one of the major themes in this letter, which is suffering and persecution. The first reason, I believe, is that elders would be a comfort and guide to the church. Right? This is essential because in times of suffering, the temptation for us is, is to despair, to give up, to run away from suffering, and possibly even from Christ. So the elders' responsibility, as well as we will see, is to care for these people who have been hurt, who are weak, wounded, and needy. Secondly, I believe Peter exhorts the elders specifically because the elders themselves need an extra measure of grace and encouragement. 
and elders' work is not easy. Their job is hard. It's hard to lead a group of sinners, and it's even harder to lead a group of sinners who are suffering. Right? Look at Moses, the Israelites. He was leading out Egypt, saw incredible miracles. The ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, bread from heaven, and water from a rock, and yet the people continue to grumble and complain. Is it not the same today? We have all seen and experienced the goodness and kindness of God, yet, as believers, we can still sometimes be discouraged, bitter, and even struggle to trust God when we are suffering. We oftentimes complain and grumble when we suffer, just like the Israelites. We are stubborn, hard-headed, stiff-necked people. Yet, the elders are called to love and care for God's people, even the ones who are most difficult. Not only are their jobs hard because they lead sinners, but also because they themselves are sinners. They have to battle their own flesh like the rest of us. So we see that Peter encourages the elders to resist certain attitudes and behaviors that leaders may be prone to. Thirdly, Peter encourages the elders because in times of persecution, they may be the ones that face the brunt of it first. Right? The opposition will try to go for the leaders because they know that if you strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. It is often a pastor who is imprisoned, tortured, or even killed. The 17th century American Puritan, Cotton Mather, says this about the office. He says, the office of the Christian ministry, rightly understood, is the most honorable and important that any man in the whole world can ever sustain. And it will be one of the wonders and employments of eternity to consider the reasons why the wisdom and goodness of God assigned this office to imperfect and guilty men. As we consider the office today, my goal is to answer four questions. Who are elders? What do they do? What is their reward? And what is the church's responsibility? With that, let's look at verse 1. It reads, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So we immediately see in verse 1 that Peter is addressing the elders of the church. Once again, we see Peter's gentleness in the way that he identifies himself as one of them, as a fellow elder. He is empathetic with them. Peter personally understands the elders' responsibilities, their fears, their struggles, the pressure that is on them because of the, he bears those same responsibilities himself. Furthermore, Peter speaks as one who is trustworthy because he has seen and testified to the sufferings of Christ. He was called by Christ. He was taught by Christ. He even walked with Christ. And lastly, Peter presents the anticipation of future glory as a motivation for the elders. Peter along the elders are partakers of this future glory, and we will see that unpacked later in the passage. So then, who are elders? So the idea of elders is not new or unique to the New Testament. It is a concept that is rooted in Old Testament Judaism. The word translated for elder in the Old Testament is often used in one of two ways. It may speak simply of someone's old age, such as in Genesis 18 when it says, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. In other places, it refers to a person in a position of leadership. During the time of Moses, God would often have Moses gather the elders of Israel together when there are special commands or signs given by God to the people. 
In Exodus 3, God told Moses to first tell the elders of Israel that God would lead them out of Egypt. He says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me. In most of these instances, it seems that the elders who are leaders in the Jewish community are also generally older men as well. As we come to the New Testament, we see that these two usages for the word elder has carried over. The Greek word translated for elder here in 1 Peter is the word presbyteros, which is where we get the modern word presbyter. In 1 Timothy 5, the word simply refers to an older person. Peter says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, and older women as a mother, as mothers. In other places in the New Testament, it refers to a position of leadership, just like the Old Testament. An example would be in Acts 14. It says, after Paul and Barnabas had preached the gospel in Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, it says in verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So to summarize, the word elder in the Bible speaks either of someone's age or of a position of spiritual leadership. And from the context of our passage today, we know that Peter is not simply addressing the older saints in the church, but rather he is addressing the leaders. We can see that by what he exhorts them to do, shepherd the flock and exercising oversight. Now on the topic of age, although the Bible does not give an age requirement to the office of elder in the New Testament, the fact that God chose to use this term to describe the office implies that there should be a level of maturity in the man that holds the office. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible for a younger man to be mature and, and have all the qualities of an elder. A prime example would be Timothy, who became a pastor in Ephesus at a young age. But I think we can all agree that in general, wisdom, experience, and maturity comes with age. Right? Even the secular world recognizes this with minimum age requirements right, for certain things like driving and discounts on car insurance. Right? They know that in general, someone who is older is less likely to be reckless behind the wheel. So now we, we, in the church, we look at someone's age not so much to assess their physical maturity, but rather their spiritual maturity. Right? When you look at the qualifications for an elder listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, you can see why age would play a role. Above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, a lover of good, upright, holy, and disciplined. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, not arrogant or quick-tempered. These are qualities that take time to develop. So has this man had enough time to grow in his faith? Has he had enough time to experience different trials and learn how to work through them? Has he had enough time to battle and wrestle with his own sins and have victory over them? Has he had enough time to cultivate a deep love for God and his people? So yes, technically, there are no age requirements for an elder, but time may be something that God uses to mature a man spiritually and emotionally so that he would be well-equipped to lead and care for God's people. Academic excellence or administrative skills alone do not qualify a man to be an elder. He must be spiritually mature in his character and his conduct. Before we move on, I would like to briefly look at uh, the other terms the Bible uses in the New Testament to describe the office. The word elders is one of three main titles used to describe this role. The other two titles are episcopos, which is translated as overseers or bishops, 
and point main, which is translated as pastors. Right? Overseer is the term Paul uses in 1 Timothy uh, and Titus when he speaks of the qualifications for the office. And the word that is translated pastors can, can be seen throughout um, the Gospels and also in Ephesians 4. And it also it can be translated as shepherds as well. So all three titles, elders, overseers, and pastors, are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament and refer to the same office of church leadership. In fact, we can see all three terms used today in our passage, or in our passage for today. <clears throat> it reads, So I exhort the elders, <clears throat> presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, poimino, which is the verb form of the noun pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episcopal, which again is a verb form of the noun overseer, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. MacArthur provides some insight. He says, though all three terms are synonymous, each has a unique emphasis within the biblical context. Elder emphasizes a man's maturity and personal character. Overseer or bishop speaks to his leadership role as a protector of the flock. And pastor emphasizes his sincere care for the people whom he serves. So that is the elder. But what does he do? Verse 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The main verb here is to shepherd. The idea of shepherding, specifically the idea of God acting as a shepherd to his people, is a motif found throughout the Bible from the beginning to the end. Well, in Genesis 48, as Jacob was on his deathbed, preparing to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, he declared, he declared God as the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And when we come to the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, John was shown a vision of multitude of people from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages before the throne of God, and it, and it was declared, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So this theme of the shepherd is not a novel idea from Peter. However, it is very personal and significant to him. If you recall, after Peter shamefully denied Christ three times, he was later found by the Sea of Tiberias in John chapter 21. And Jesus appeared to him, and after having breakfast together, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. It is striking that as Peter was restoring Peter and recommissioning him to be a leader in the church, he caused Peter to be a shepherd. No longer was he to be a fisherman. No longer was he to cast nets and haul fish. But rather, his calling now is to feed and tend sheep. Having received that commission from Christ, Peter now delivers it to the elders. Shepherd, the flock of God. 
The fact that elders are called the shepherd implies that the people under the charge bear some resemblance to sheep, right? In his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, W. Philip Keller offers some shepherd insights from his firsthand experiences with sheep. He says this, It is no accident that God has chosen to call us sheep. The behavior of sheep and human beings is very similar in many ways. Sheep don't just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. They have little or no means of self-defense. They're helpless, timid, feeble creatures whose only recourse is to run. A cat sheep is one who is turned over on his back and cannot get up again by itself. It is a very pathetic sight. Even a strong, healthy, and flourishing sheep can be cast down, and it will die if the shepherd does not find it in time. Being stubborn creatures, sheep often get into the most ridiculous and preposterous dilemmas. I have seen my own sheep, greedy for one more mouthful of green grass, climb down steep cliffs where they slipped and fell into the sea. Another commentator puts it, puts it succinctly, the thing about sheep is that they are slow, dumb, and delicious. <clears throat> the fact that God's people are liking the sheep is not meant to be insulting, but rather it's meant to be humbling. Right? We, like sheep, need to be guided, to be cared for, to be protected, and sometimes even to be rescued from harm. We need to be shepherded. Hence, shepherding is the primary work of an elder. Others note, also notice who is being shepherded. It is the flock of God. The congregation does not belong to the pastor. It doesn't matter how talented, how influential, how successful he is, or how well he preaches. The flock belongs to God. Why? Because he obtained it, as it says in Acts 20, with his own blood. He bought it at a great price. So what does that say about the value of the church of God? What does that say about the stewardship given to elders to shepherd God's people? Furthermore, Peter says, this is the flock of God that is among you. He repeats this idea twice. In verse 1, he says, so I exhort the elders among you. And then in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I believe this has two significance. In one sense, Peter's points that Peter's point is that the elders at Crossway are not responsible for shepherding every believer in the world or even every believer in Bakersfield. They are called to shepherd a specific group of people that God has entrusted to them, those in their local church. But how do, but how do you define that? How do you define who is part of the local church? Are elders responsible for someone who has attended the church once, twice, how long and how regularly must a person attend Sunday worship before he's considered a part of the flock? This is why church membership is crucial, right? It provides a clear way to identify the flock of God that an elder is responsible to shepherd. This is Crossway Baptist. These are the elders. These are the names of the members. Elders care for them. One commentator puts it, church eldership requires some concept of church membership. The second significance of this point is that elders ought to be among his people. He is not a ruler who is far off, separated from everyone else. Rather, he is a shepherd among his sheep. He walks in the midst of his people. He does life with them. He labors side by side with them. 
He knows them, and he knows their needs and their problems because he is with them. As one author says, a good shepherd ought to smell like sheep. Consider the good shepherd who not only laid down his life for his sheep, but also spent his life with them. Jesus was constantly among people. He walked through towns. He entered people's homes. He had meals with people. He taught in synagogues. He ministered to great crowds. He interacted with children. He even touched lepers. He touched them. He was among his people. A shepherd ought to be among his sheep. So what does shepherding entail? Well, first, a major part of shepherding is feeding the sheep. Right? Shepherds must feed the flock of God with the word of God. Though not every elder is gifted to preach, he must be able to teach. He must be able to rightly handle the word of truth and give instruction in sound doctrine. It is the primary way a shepherd feeds his flock. Second, a shepherd must also protect his flock from false teaching. Acts 20 warns us that there are fierce wolves that will come in among us, not sparing the flock. And even from among the flock will arise men speaking twisted things to draw people away after them. Just as shepherds ward off lions and wolves, elders must ward off false teachers. An elder must, not, must be able to not only give instruction and sound notion, but also to rebuke those who contradicted, as Paul says in Titus 1. Third, a shepherd must keep track of his sheep, especially those who may be straying from the flock. If they are lost, he must search them out. Members who are sinning, who have been hurt, or who feel disconnected from the church may slowly wander away over time. The elder must pursue these members. He must confront the sinner, comfort those who have been hurt, and counsel those who feel disconnected. An elder doesn't just put up with those who are weak. He cares and ministers to them. He guides them back to Christ. In Ezekiel 34, God rebukes the shepherd Israel for failing to do just this. He says, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. God cares deeply for every sheep in his flock, even the ones who stray away. So the elders who shepherd God's flock by feeding them with the word, protecting them from false, uh, false teachers, and guiding them back if they get lost. Another function of the elder, according to Peter, is to exercise oversight. He is to provide leadership and oversee the general affairs of the local church. This involves overseeing the finances, the different ministries, and the general operation of the church. <clears throat> and in order for him to do that, the elder must have some measure of authority. And we'll see later in a few verses that Peter exhorts the rest of the church to submit to their authority. This position of oversight, MacArthur says, is entrusted to the elders by Christ himself and signifies that there is no earthly authority in the local church higher than theirs. But notice that the shepherd is both among the flock and also over the flock. Right? One temptation for a pastor is to be put on a pedestal so far above the flock that he's never among them, while the other temptation is for him to be so mixed in the flock that he fails to lead them. An effective pastor needs both relationships. 
So to summarize, an elder is a spiritually mature man who uses his God-given gifts to look after God's people and oversee God's work. Having exhorted the elders to shepherd and oversee the church, Peter now gives them the manner by which they should do it. He does this by presenting three pairs of contrasting attitudes. He says, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, and not domineering, but being examples to the flock. Why we do what we do is important because God examines the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, says God in 1 Samuel. It is not enough just to do the right things. We must do the right things for the right reasons. So why does a young man want to become an elder? Why does an elder do hospital visits? Why does an elder confront sin? Why does he have hard and awkward conversations rather than avoiding them? Why does he sacrifice his day off to meet with a struggling couple? Why does he continually reach out to people who are rude or hurtful and want nothing to, to do with him? What compels an elder, what motivates him, should be more than simply, it is my job. It's just what I have to do as an elder. Peter says in verse 2 that an elder should not perform his duties under compulsion, but willingly, according to God's will. So about three months ago, we took in a a foster baby who we have been calling Ethan. He was about eight months old at the time, but he was neglected, so he was functioning at a level of a three- or four-month-old. So at eight months, he should have already been eating some solid foods, right? But he, he was only, still only drinking milk from a bottle. And that's all he wanted. He wanted nothing to do with solid foods. He would clamp his mouth shut, turn his head left and right, trying to dodge the spoon from my patient wife. So eventually, she just had to force him to eat it. So she would squeeze his cheeks, his lips would open, and she would stick the spoon in. So to to be under compulsion means to be forced or constrained to do something. So unlike unlike Ethan, an elder should not be forced to care for God's people. You shouldn't have to twist his arm or squeeze his cheeks to force him (laughs) to teach a class or visit someone in a hospital. Right? Likewise, he isn't visiting someone simply out of obligation just so he can check their names off a list. He does it because he loves the people and he generally cares for them. He freely and willingly moves towards pain, suffering, sorrow, and dysfunction, even if it is uncomfortable for him. Paul links the same attitude to the act of tithing. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Shepherding or tithing or discipling, or meeting with people, or reading your Bibles under compulsion does not please God. It doesn't matter how much time you spend with people or how much money you give to the church, God loves the cheerful giver, and he loves willing servants. He doesn't want a bunch of people who serve him only because they feel obligated to. Who would want that? Right, definitely not our spouses. Right? Dinner tastes better and a foot rub is more enjoyable when you know it is done from love, not under compulsion. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so an elder wants, 
So an elder must want to care for his people, not because he has to, right? Okay, back to the text. <clears throat> Additionally, an elder must do his work not for shameful gain, but eagerly, right? There are a number of things that a pastor can gain from his ministry. Prestige, power, influence, but the underlying Greek word here refers most directly to money. Now, this verse is not saying that it's wrong for a pastor to earn his living through service to the church, nor is it saying that pastors should be eager to work for free. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, because especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So it is completely proper for the church to pay the pastor, and we should be fair, as fair and generous as possible. But making money for himself must not be the main motive for his ministry. Paul emphasized this point in the qualifications he listed in 1 Timothy, not a lover of money, and in Titus 1, not greedy for gain. But the idea of shameful gain is even more than that. It's more than just the seeking of money. It speaks of the sordid, sleazy, immoral way of acquiring it. The King James Version would would translate as filthy lucre. So the idea is that the love of money would cause an elder to be dishonest or or to to do dishonest and shameful things to acquire more of it. His ministry is driven by his own selfish desires. He is fleecing the flock that God has entrusted to him, and ultimately he is stealing from God. These are worldly desires, and they detour the elder from his mission. Paul says in 2 Timothy, no, soldiers get, no soldier gets entangled in civilian, civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So rather than getting caught up in worldly pursuits, an elder ought to shepherd eagerly because his aim is to please God. One commentator puts it this way, <clears throat> given the contrast with shameful gain, eagerly seems to suggest not only a deep willingness to do the work, but also a decided lack of calculation in the work. The godly elder does not tally what he can get from the ministry and then decide to labor or not accordingly. He throws himself into the work, come what may, large paycheck or small, honor or suspicion, influence or weakness, difficulty or ease. For him, the work offers its own rewards. The third and last contrast that Peter gives is in verse 3. He says, an elder should do his work, not domineering over those in his charge, but being examples to the flock. Domineering means to forcefully rule over someone, to subdue them. It suggests the idea of an excessive use of authority, right? to be overbearing and exceedingly harsh. Other translations will render as lording it over. This idea echoes the teaching of Jesus In Mark chapter 10, he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Elders ought to use the authority to serve their flock, not as an opportunity to oppress them. An elder should not govern by the use of threats or emotional intimidation, 
Neither should he flaunt or impose his powers over others. Rather, Peter says he should, be, he should lead by example. His life and manner of conduct ought to be an example for others to follow. Example of what? Example of Christ. Example of Christ-likeness, what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul would say. Grudem makes this point. He says, everyone in leadership positions in the church should realize that the requirements to live a life worthy of imitation is not optional. It is a major part of the job. Leaders are constantly being watched. They're constantly being turned to for advice and counsel. And they often counsel with words, but many times they give counsel without even knowing it through their actions and conduct. So if an elder says the church ought to be more hospitable, then he ought to be more hospitable. If he tells the church to give generously and sacrificially, then he ought to give generously and sacrificially. An elder ought to practice what he preaches. (laughs) And if he is a faithful preacher, preaching the whole counsel of God, then that is a long list of things he ought to practice. Humility, kindness, patience, self-control, quick to forgive, and quick to ask for forgiveness. Honesty, purity of speech, purity of heart, submitting to government, loving his wife, managing his household, keeping his children submissive, prioritizing church, regarding, regarding others as more important than himself, just to list a few. An elder ought to, be, ought to have an exemplary life. So we don't expect him to be perfect, but he should be the kind of man that people can follow. So what is his reward? What is in it for a shepherd? Recently, I've had the privilege of sitting in some of the elder meetings, and it has been a joy and encouragement to watch our elders work together um, and make thoughtful, thoughtfully make decisions that would be honoring to Christ, to watch them pray together, study the Word together, and work together to shepherd God's people through difficult circumstances, even the ones who don't want to be shepherded. So that is a reward in itself, the satisfaction of working with like-minded men. And there's also the joy of serving a loving congregation, serving those who love Jesus and seek to please him. But here in verse 4, Peter gives the ultimate reward, the reward that the elder will receive at the second coming of Christ. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And when the chief shepherd appears, that little phrase reminds us that there is one shepherd who is great. There is one shepherd who is preeminent, one who is above all. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Elders will at times fail you. They may fail to care for you. They may fail to lead you because they are imperfect shepherds. But there is one shepherd who is perfect. He is perfect in all his ways. He is the perfect comforter. He is the perfect healer, the perfect protector, the perfect provider, the perfect teacher, the perfect leader. He is our all in all. And his name is Jesus Christ, the chief and perfect shepherd. Every elder of every church, from the least to the greatest, are all under-shepherds. The under-shepherds 
serve the chief shepherd by leading his sheep. This verse not only speaks of the rewards of an elder, but also reminds them of their accountability, that there is a chief shepherd coming. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders as those who will have to give an account. Give account to whom? Well, this verse answers that question. Give an account to Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd. It is from him who the elders receive the reward, and it is to him who every elder will be accountable to. Every exercise of care, every pastoral insight, every word of exhortation, every word of discipline, every word the elder speaks, he will have to give an account for. That is a great responsibility. But there is an equally great reward. If an elder is faithful, if he shepherds well with the right motives, he will receive from the chief shepherd the unfading crown of glory. The things of this world, the elder's power, his prestige, his paychecks, his accolades from people, they will all fade away, but the reward from the chief shepherd will never diminish in glory. Elders, your true shepherd is not here. Don't shepherd for the rewards of this world, things that moth and rust destroy. Don't be distracted by them, but keep your eyes on the coming Christ. Shepherd in light of the Christ who died for his sheep, and the Christ who is coming back. Shepherd, in order to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the, into the joy of your master. Before we move on, I want to end this session with a quote from Alistair Begg. I think it's a good quote to transition to our last verse, which speaks of humility. Alistair Begg says this to the elders. He says, If the chief shepherd wore the crown of thorns to make it possible our wearing of a crown of glory, surely none of us in leadership should be walking around with any little crowns on our heads prematurely. The only crown any of us ought to be wearing should be the ones given to us from Christ himself. So the elder has this tremendous task in front of him, an equally sobering accountability to God. What then is our responsibility? What is the responsibility of the rest of the church? Peter tells us in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Our responsibility is simply to submit. Submit to your elders. As we determined earlier, Peter used the word elders to refer to the leadership of the church. So consequently, he uses the term younger here to refer to everyone else, the rest of the church. Considering Peter's previous exhortation in his letter, we are to submit to every human institution, even an unrighteous government, we are to submit to unjust masters, and wives are to submit even to unsafe husbands. How much more are we to submit to our elders, who, as Hebrews 13 says, keep watch over our souls? Hebrews 13, 17 reads, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As a sheep, you do not want a disgruntled shepherd watching over you. He's going to let you walk right off the cliff. I'm not saying that our elders would do that, but that is the idea. It is of no advantage to us to grieve the elders, to resist them, to fight them and argue with them when there is no good reason to. And I know there are bad shepherds out there, but that is not the point of this verse. The point is, if an elder is faithful and upright and he is sincerely striving to honor God and do what's right, why are you grieving him 
by resisting his authority. This is a shame, but I find that at times we are quicker and more willing to submit to our bosses in the workplace than we are to our elders in the church. And it's probably because our bosses pay us and our elders don't. But that is a terrible misconception because what our elders do for us is eternally more valuable than what any boss can. Ephesians, tell, Ephesians 4 tells us that Jesus Christ gives elders as gifts to the church. The elders of Crossway are gifts from Christ to this church, and we should receive them and treat them as such. We should honor them, we should respect them, and we should obey them. MacArthur says this, MacArthur says that a crucial and underlying part of a submissive attitude is a mind given to humility. And that is the call Peter gives to everyone, including the elders at the end of verse 5. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word clothe literally means to tie something onto oneself, <clears throat> such as a work apron worn by servants. But here, Peter is using it figuratively to call us to cover ourselves with an attitude of humility. The church is to humbly submit to the elders' authority. But at the same time, elders also ought to humbly lead and shepherd the church as one who has to give an account. Furthermore, all of us ought to humble ourselves towards one another. Right, the word clothes certainly brings to mind John 13, when Christ laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel he tied around his waist. He then poured water into a basin and proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus, the Son of God, washing the feet of sinful man. The Son of God washing people's feet. Not only that, but he was spat on, slapped, beaten, mocked, scourged, stripped of his clothes, struck on the head, and crucified on the cross. This is the example of humility that Christ left for us. And Paul says in Philippians 2 that we ought to have the same mind of Christ, that we ought to humble ourselves as Christ did. One commentator says, smooth relations in the church will be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. Humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Think of a person at Crossway who is the most difficult for you to speak to, for whatever the reason. Now think of what it would look like for, for you to clothe yourself with humility towards that man or woman. Would you insist on having your way over theirs? Would you hold back forgiveness? Would you hesitate to ask for forgiveness? Would you be quick to judge them, to judge their motives? Would you look down on them because of their age, whether they are too, too young or too old? What would Crossway look like if we all clothed ourselves with humility towards one another? To count others more significant than ourselves. Remember what it looked like for Christ, the Son of God washing the feet of sinful men. Peter concludes this verse 
by giving the basis for this admonition with a citation from Proverbs chapter 3, which is also quoted in James. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud because he hates pride, according to Proverbs 6. It is a terrifying thing to be opposed by the God that created the universe. It is almost silly to think about, but I think that we often forget this fact. If we truly consider what it would look like for us personally to be opposed by God, I think we would all try harder to fight the sin of pride. That alone should be a great motivation for us to cultivate an attitude of humility. But Peter gives us another motivation. He says that God gives grace to those who are humble. Isaiah chapter 57, in in Isaiah chapter 57, he shows us one example of what that would look like. He says in verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The God who dwells in the high and holy places also dwells with him who has a contrite and lowly spirit. Would you not rather be in a place where God dwells with you to revive you and to give you grace rather than a place where God opposes you? Church, pursue humility. Clothe yourselves with it for the sake of Christ and his church, and God will uphold you with his grace. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word today. I pray for our leaders. I pray that you would uphold them by your grace to shepherd Crossway faithfully and sacrificially. I pray that you would raise up men in this church to care for your sheep because they are precious to you. I also pray for all of us that we would be people clothed in humility, that we would count others more significant than ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.